Bertrand Russell, do you know who that is? Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher, I believe he's passed away now. Philosopher and atheist, an outspoken critic of religion and faith, was asked on one particular occasion what he would say if after his death he met God face to face. He famously answered, he would say, God, you gave us insufficient evidence. Deep down, there are many who might echo Russell's sentiments here. They may not voice it out loud, but deep down, there's a question. Deep down, there's wonder. God, if you're real, why can't we see you? Why aren't you more evident to us? It might be safe to even go so far as to say that every one of us, has had some similar thought or idea in our heads, in our hearts. I don't think it's completely way out there to have that thought. God, we want to see you more. We want to know you more. Even Moses, the great Moses of the Old Testament, who raised his staff and the Red Sea was parted, he said to God, show me your glory. I want to see you, God. I want to see you. I think there's a deep desire, a desire deep down within the heart of every single person that would say, I want to see God. I want to see God. One of the disciples, also an apostle of Jesus, his name is John. John sat down and he sat down to write a gospel, a, the good news of Jesus Christ, and a declaration and history of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That, that Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. And John sets out in his gospel to demonstrate who Jesus is in the opening of his gospel, in what is called the prologue of his gospel. It's kind of like if you were going to read a book or something like that, it would be like, you know, kind of the introduction, the, the opening prologue of this piece of literature that John is penning. And the one thing that we want to do that John echoes here is we want to see Jesus. But what John tells us in the one verse that we're going to read tonight is that no one has seen God at any time. So the, the, the one deep desire that we each have deep down in our hearts, John kind of, in, a, in some way you could say, you know, burst the bubble. You know, no one has seen God at any time. But what we see also in this verse of Scripture is something great. And it was brought about by what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus of, of Nazareth in Bethlehem. Jesus' birth brings about the deepest longing of every human heart, the desire to see God. So let's take a look at this one verse tonight and see what John meant. I'm going to read it for us, if you're following along. John chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So no one has seen God at any time. This is kind of a, it's kind of a statement here that John is 
you know, he's emphatically making the statement, no one has seen God at any time. But if you know a little bit about the Old Testament and what has happened, you know, it, it might, you know, it might beg a question. There's a few questions that, you know, even the, the, the person who's had just a little dabble in the Old Testament might say, no, wait, 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 wait. There's some things that, you know, I got some questions about that. No one has seen God at any time. I mean, no one, never. And if you look in the Old Testament, I mean, I mentioned him earlier. You come to Moses. Moses. You remember, after he fled out of Egypt, he was raised in Egypt by the Pharaoh's family and raised in the riches of Egypt with the finest education at that time, probably, that the world could afford, could offer. And if you read in Exodus, you see that Moses fled out of Egypt and he ended up marrying a woman and he ended up working for her dad, working for his father-in-law. And the Bible tells us that Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law, and it specifically says on the backside of the desert. I mean, you don't get any farther away from what's going on than the backside of the desert. And on this one particular occasion, as he was watching the flocks there, he saw something amazing. A bush, a bush that was burning, but not being consumed. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, I'll have it up on the screen for you. It says this there in that context. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, and this is in the Old Testament, this is the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh. And it brings up kind of a theological question. Here, Moses is looking towards this burning bush and we see that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is speaking to him, calling to him from the midst of the bush. And this is believed by scholars to, believe, to be what we would call a theophany or perhaps more specifically a Christophany. A Christophany. What's that? It's an Old Testament sighting of the Messiah, the Christos. It's an Old Testament sighting. It's, it's, it's an embodiment, but not in human flesh, but in some type of form, physical form, some type of form that was recognizable to people who, who beheld the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. It's an embodied signing, let me put it this way, of a pre-human Christ, the Son, the second person, of the Trinity. You see, it wasn't until the birth, until Jesus came and was born of Mary, that he took on human flesh. But in the Old Testament, we see these sightings that are, they are embodiments of perhaps the Christ, but it is before he came in the way he did in what we celebrate at Christmas. And so here in Exodus 3, we see this theophany, this Christophany perhaps. But as you make your way through the Bible, these are not, this is not an isolated instance. This is not an isolated instance of someone beholding, beholding the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh was the one who also met with Abraham underneath the terebinth tree, that famous uh, time that he had that conversation with the angel of Yahweh there. 
And he's the one who stopped Abraham when he was about to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise, the son Isaac. Remember, just when he was about to sacrifice Isaac, the Bible tells us the angel of Yahweh called to him. And it was the angel of the Lord that stopped him. He was the one, this angel of Yahweh, he was the one who met Joshua on the plains of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 5, at the end, right before the battle of Jericho, Joshua in that nighttime meeting meets this guy and discovers that, you know, this guy's the one that's going to lead the battle, that he's the one that's going to fight the battle of Jericho. You know, we say, you know, the, the, the question is asked in the song, who fought the battle of Jericho? Yeah, it was the angel of Yahweh that fought the battle of Jericho. Look at it, the end of Joshua chapter 5, if you're curious about that. He was also the one that met the prophets one by one, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Elisha. If you go through your Old Testament, these sightings are not isolated things. These are things that happen. Anybody who's anybody in the Old Testament had an occasion with the angel of Yahweh. And then backing up to Exodus, you have this sighting of the appearance of God, you look at Exodus chapter 24. And this is the setting after Moses had brought the people out of the land of Egypt and he brought them out to the mountain of God. And Moses and his brother Aaron and Aaron's two boys, Adab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel had gone up to the mountain. They had gone up to the mountain to pray, to meet with the Lord. And we have this interesting couple of verses in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 and 10. I'll have it up on the screen for you. It says this, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Look at this. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Wow, okay, now, now we've got some questions going off here. What can this be? If John, in John chapter 1, is telling us no one has seen God at any time, but yet we have these sightings of the angel of Yahweh, we have Abra uh, Moses, Aaron, Nahadab, and Nabayu, the 70 elders of Israel, and it's telling us that they saw the God of Israel. Many scholars believe that this was also... Uh, some, an appearance in some way, in some form, and perhaps even some kind of heavenly vision that they saw. Uh, or it could be, or it could be, I mean, because I'm not claiming to even know, <laughs> amen? I mean, we're going to find out some of this stuff when we get, you know, we're going to sit down with God and ask him a whole bunch of questions. It could be that it was the glory of God, because the glory of God was also something uh, that, that people beheld in the Old Testament, so in that sense, it could be that God allowed the elders of Israel to see such a, a, this spectacular vision to just impress upon them who he was and his glory and how he was going to move in Israel and how he was going to speak to Moses face to face. Later on in Exodus chapter 33, Moses would ask to see God. He, that's that time that I mentioned earlier in the opening where he says, God, I want to see you. Show me your glory. And God said, well, you can't, you can't see all of me. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in this, this little cleft of the rock here, 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go by, and you're going to see kind of the backside of my glory. And you can read all about this in Exodus chapter 33, and this is that place where, where, God, where God showed his glory to Moses. But then I want to take you to one more encounter. Fast forwarding to the time of Moses, a few hundred years to the time when Israel is now in the land, the temple has been constructed in Jerusalem, and we have the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, we have another interesting occurrence. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I'll also have these verses on the screen for you. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, speaking of Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I mean, this was, this was kind of an incredible, an incredible moment where Isaiah was kind of seeing what he was seeing there before him. I'll stop right there. Here, he, Isaiah is proclaiming, I, see, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And, and there he was, and, the, and it was the throne, and, 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 and the train of his robes filled the temple, and it was glory, and the, and the, and the doorpost shook, and, and the smoke. I mean, there was, you know, I don't know what the, you know, it was like a just big fog machine or something. I mean, this was, there was stuff going on. And what was the reaction to this? The reaction was, verse 5, he says, woe to me. I cried, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. I think sometimes in maybe uh, our pride, we want to say, I want to see God, I want to see God, I want to see God, and realize, not realizing that if we truly saw him, that we would be literally ruined because of who he is, because of his holiness. There are those angels constantly before the throne crying holy 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 we i don't know i've tried to comprehend it i've done study we've done all kinds of you know the holiness of god the otherness of god wow what what must this be like but isaiah's response i'm ruined i am ruined i'm undone now this is perhaps also a christophany of, of kinds, um, the Lord's glory, a Christophany, and it was incredible. It was overwhelming. But then again, we still come back to the verse, John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. So how are we to know him? How are we to know God? How are we to know what he's like? How are we to know that he's real? How are we to know him? And like Bertrand Russell quipped in that answer to that question, God, you did not give us enough evidence. Well, John, in this verse, he continues and he gives us the answer. It's, you see, the son has made him known. The son, no one has seen God at any time, but the son has made him known. Look at that. 
verse 18. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The second, the Son, the second person of the Trinity has made God known to us. How is it that we're going to see God? How is it that, that you and I can, can sit here even tonight and say, I, I want to see God. I want to know God. I, I, if God is real, I, I want to see him. I want to know him. How is it that we can? It's that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has made God known to us. The atheist may say, why have you not given more evidence? Or why don't you make yourself more self-evident? But that is exactly what God has done. It's exactly what God has done in sending the Son into the world to take on human flesh. And Paul put it this way in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 6. I'll have it on the screen for you tonight. Speaking of Christ, he says this, who being in the very nature God did not consider it equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Next verse. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, verse 8, and being found in appearances as a man. What's Paul saying? That second person of the Trinity, the Son, who did not consider it equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Another translation puts it this way, grasped or held on to, but he laid it down. He laid it down and he came and he was incarnated. He was embodied. He took on human flesh and being found in appearance as what? As a man, as a human being, as a man. And actually first as a baby, as a baby born in Bethlehem to his mother Mary and Joseph. And Jesus, John tells us about this Jesus, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. He says he's the only begotten son. Look at that verse 18. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. The only begotten son. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, that little phrase sounds familiar. Because it's a similar phrase that we see in perhaps the most famous verse of scripture on the planet, other than judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> That's the most famous, okay? But the other famous one, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And so here we have this only begotten son. And if you grew up in the church, you grew up with this language, this translation. And uh, let me say it this way. It, it can be a bit of an unfortunate translation because it leads us English speakers to believe, because when we say begotten, when you say begotten in English, it kind of leads you, lends you to believe that, that he's somehow coming into existence, that, that he's being begotten in the natural way, as we would understand it in human terms, right? Begotten, as a, a father would begot his sons and daughters and so on and so forth. So I want to take you to the original phrase there in the Greek. Can I do that? Can I throw out a little Greek here tonight for you? Yeah. Monogenes. Monogenes weos. Monogenes weos. The one and unique son. The one and unique son would be a better translation. It's the one and absolutely unique. There's no one like him. Amen. 
and he's coming from the bosom of the Father. Monogenes weas. And then he tells us that this one and unique son, this one and only unique son, comes from the bosom of the Father. Now here we go again. <laughs> only begotten son, and now we've got this bosom of the Father. What in the world's a bosom of the Father? I mean, honestly, do, does a father have a bosom? I don't know. <clears throat> in the bosom of the father, in the language, it reflects this. It reflects the nearness to the father. That within the Godhead, you have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is this this diversity in the Godhood, but it's diversity, it's unity in diversity. You have this perfect fellowship of the Godhead, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And so you have the second person, the Son, is in the bosom of the Father. And so, again, it reflects the nearness, this closeness. In fact, it echoes how John opened the whole gospel to begin with. If you fast forward to the first verse, we read verse 18 tonight. But if you go all the way back up to the first verse of the gospel of John, it says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was what? With God. With God. And so here he's saying in verse 18, he's in the bosom of the father. In verse 1, he said he's with God. And also, and the word was God. Amen. Right. And so he's in the he's the one and only son and he's in the bosom of the father. And then John lays it on there on that last sentence, that last statement. John declares that the incarnate word made known the Father. It says, he says this way in the NKJV, he has declared him. He has declared him. The Son has declared God to the world. Amen? Amen. If you look at that word, one more little piece of Greek, okay? One more little nugget from the original Greek. This word made known. If you look at this word made known in the original Greek, it is the word exegeomai, exegeomai, okay? I think I have it. Can you put that up on the screen? Exegeomai, there, there it is, there it is. Now, this is actually not Greek. This is a transliteration of the Greek, okay? This is the transliteration so we can actually read it, okay? Unless you're a Greek scholar, my dad could read it in the original Greek. But this is the transliteration of the Greek. Now, Exegeomai. What does it mean? Well, here, John's saying he has declared him. He's made him known. The Son has made known the Father. Right? From this Greek term, keep it up there. From this Greek term, we derive the word exegesis, how, how we would say it, or exegesis, exegesis. What's exegesis? Well, when you go to Bible college... After you get through your first year where they put you through all these survey classes, intro to theology, uh, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, all this stuff, you get into your second year as preacher school, and you have to take a class called biblical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. And in hermeneutics class is where you learn how to do exegesis, right? Exegesis. What is it? It's really where you learn. It's exegesis. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. And what you learn how to do in hermeneutics is you learn how to exegete the scripture. 
you learn how to draw out and declare and make known and declare what it is that the word is saying. And so you learn how to exegete the passage, kind of hopefully what I'm attempting to do tonight for you guys, amen, exegeting this verse so that you can walk home and go, I don't know what that verse means, amen, and it's been made known to me, it's been declared to me. And so this is what John's saying. He's saying, Jesus is exegeting the Father. Amen? He's exegeting the Father for all of us, for all of the world, so that we can see him, so that we can see who God is. And so you could say it this way, Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. Jesus is the exegesis of of the Father. What's that? Jesus made known to us the Father. Amen? Amen. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this, is, this verb means to tell a narrative. It's to, it's to tell something or to narrate something. And so in that sense, you could say that, that he told us, that he declared to us. That's why some of the translators use that. He declared. He, he narrated the Father to us. Amen? In that sense, we might say that Jesus is the narration of God as Jesus gives life and is life. He raises the dead and he is the resurrection. He gives bread and he is bread. He speaks truth and he is truth. So as he speaks the word, he is the word. He speaks the word and he is the word. Amen. So sometimes when you're teaching, you're preaching, you're saying something about Jesus and you're saying something that he does and someone might be in the congregation going, well, wait a second, that's who he is. But yeah, but it's also what he does. But it's who he is. But it's what he does. It's who he is. Yeah, he's exegeting the Father to us so that we can know him, so that we can see him, so that he's making known to us God. Amen. The God of heaven. As we sung in the song earlier, God of heaven, come down. God of heaven, come now. And it's Jesus who's made him known. Amen. Paul put it this way to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You'll see it on the screen. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And so to a Bertrand Russell, God, you did not give us enough evidence. It was, and then another quip, and I don't begrudge anybody anything that they want to say. I mean, hey, look, there's multiple people, many people on a journey. They're trying to find, they're trying to seek. But you've got you've to open up your eyes. You've got to open up your ears to hear the word of God that was spoken Christ, the Word, and He is. He is the image of the invisible God. Well, why doesn't God just make Himself known? Why doesn't He come down to earth? Well, that's what He did. <laughs> Amen? That's what He did. He's the image of the invisible God. A couple more things. This is a story, perhaps some of you have heard it before, but I thought it was appropriate to tell here tonight. There was a man who wasn't into Christmas as his wife was. He just didn't believe all that Jesus stuff and baby Jesus and the incarnation and all this stuff we've been talking about. Didn't believe what the church proclaimed at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense. Did, this didn't make sense. 
He wasn't going to pretend that it did. He just couldn't swallow it. The whole God coming to earth as man just couldn't wrap his mind around it. So he told his wife, I'm not going to go to church with you for the Christmas service. Not going to go. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. And he went to the window to watch the flurries get heavier and heavier and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a, a sound, then another, and then another, and then a, kind of a thump or a thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm, and in a desperate search for shelter, they tried to fly through his large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide them warm shelter. Well, I'll just kind of lead them over to the barn, direct the birds to it. Quickly, he put on his coat, tramped through the snow, the deep, deepening snow to the barn. And he opened the doors of the barn wide and turned on the light, but the birds didn't come. They didn't come to the barn. He figured is they would just be enticed, possibly by just you know, the open doors of the barn. So he hurried back to the house, fetched breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of, of this barn. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them and waving his arms, and instead they scattered in every direction except into the warmth of the lighted barn. He then, he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Because any movie made tended to frighten the birds, confuse them. They just would not follow. They wouldn't be led or shooed because they feared him. Then he said, if only I could become a bird and mingle with them and speak their language, then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm, well-lit barn. But I would have to be one of them so that they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells, listening to the, the bells, the glad tidings of Christmas ringing in his ear. And he sank to his knees in the snow, realizing that he had just seen the picture of Christmas, that Jesus came into this earth to declare to us the Father, to become one of us so that we might know the Lord, that we might know God. Whoever we are, it doesn't matter who we are. I want to close with this. There was a time in the life and the ministry of Jesus when it was later on 
right before Jesus' death, that the disciples were all together with Jesus. And one of them, one of the disciples, whose name was Philip, he said to Jesus, would you show us the Father? Jesus, would you show us the Father? And Jesus, this is what Jesus said to them in John 14, verse 9. You'll see it on the screen. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So what do we need to do to see God? What do we need to do? You know, I think that, again, and I'm not putting anyone down, but I think some people don't find him because they're not looking in the right place. They're not open to the way in which he's presenting himself. I kind of remind myself of one of those type of people all the time because I'm always looking for something. And I'll ask Mary Jo, where is this? Well, it's over there in the room. I said, well, I looked in there. It's not in there. Well, she'll walk over there, walk right to it and say, here it is. Here it is. What do we need to do this Christmas? We need to look at Jesus. We need to look at Jesus. We need to see Jesus. What do we need to do this Christmas season? More than anything, more than anything, we need to behold him. We need to lay our eyes on Jesus and see him. And so I want to invite you tonight to allow the Lord to as we sung in the, in the song earlier, allow the Lord to open the eyes of your heart so that you can see him this Christmas season.